So over the last several weeks, we've seen that our views on sex and gender depend on background beliefs that we bring to the discussion. And these background beliefs have to do with three primary issues. Identity, freedom, and love. And furthermore, our views on such matters are shaped by reason and argument and reflection less often than we think. That's just not the way it works. What typically happens is that our background beliefs are held at a kind of pre-articulate level. We take them in with the air we breathe. We drink them from the surrounding culture. And this is the reason that we started the entire series the way we have. Before ever getting to complicated issues with regard to gender or homosexuality or gender dysphoria or divorce or any of these kinds of things, some of which we'll get to in the next few weeks, we've needed to start much further back. And so we've spent three weeks trying to see air. That's what we've been doing for the last three weeks, trying to, to identify the air that we're breathing. And now it's time for us to shift our attention from the stories our society tells to the story that God tells. And my goal for tonight is to help us to begin the process of seeing sexuality and gender from God's perspective. And the way to do that is to turn our attention from the stories our society is telling about identity, freedom, and love to the story that God tells. And to do that, we look at the Bible. Now, some people at this point might want to say, wait, wait, wait a minute, it's not that simple. After all, the Bible was written by humans. And so you said the story God tells, and then you shifted to the Bible and we should be careful about presuming that we can just read the Bible and get God's perspective. And yes, it's true enough that humans wrote the Bible. However, if we simply go from saying humans wrote the Bible to saying therefore the Bible is inadequate, as though the human authors were some shameful secret that we've just laid bare to the world, some deficiency that we're now in a position to patch up, well, then when we treat the Bible that way, it is we who should be charged with ignorance and superstition. The humanity of the Bible does not entitle us to patronize it. The Bible is God's chosen means for telling the truth about the world. Scripture is the record that God has authorized. God has set Scripture apart from all of the other writings and all of our experiences and all of our scientific abilities. It's different. Just like God set apart a particular race and a particular member of that race for the salvation of the world, in the same way he has set apart particular writers to give us a definite and decisive testimony to what he's done in this world. Just as we speak of the sinlessness of the human Jesus of Nazareth, so we can speak of the perfection of Holy Scripture. Now some people will counter this by shifting 
They would shift the argument from a critique of the Bible to a critique of the church. A critique of the church's history of interpreting the Bible. So it's becoming common to hear someone say something like, well, you know, the Bible can be used to support a whole number of different views on a whole host of issues. Take any passage of Scripture and you'll find sincere Christians who hold one view and a similar number of equally devout believers who hold an opposing view. And so the claim that's being made here is that there really hasn't been a single overarching Christian understanding of sexuality and gender. But that's wrong. That argument is not true. It is not right. Yes, there have been varieties of local law and custom and permission within Christian cultures with respect to sexuality over the past two millennia, but the basic lines of discussion have been stable, and they point in a relatively stable direction. The history of the church, the tradition of the church, is clear and consistent on sexuality and gender. Most Christians at most times in most places have believed the same thing about sex and gender. There is a historical, a historic consensus about human sexuality that has been a part of the church through all of its major expressions, Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, and it's been that way from the very beginning. And it has only been recently that people have said that's not the case. It has only seriously been called to question since the sexual revolution began in the 1960s. So on the one hand, the Bible is God's word and scripture. And in scripture, God has clearly and consistently and extensively talked to us about sexuality and gender. And on the other hand, the church tradition has been clear on what the Bible teaches regarding these matters. And so as we turn our attention from culture for the last three weeks to scripture, what we're after is a biblically shaped imagination. One that is trained in scripture shaped instincts because the Bible is the true story of the whole world and it is authoritative for all of life today. This is a basic belief of Christianity. The authority of the Bible is essential to Christianity. If you don't have a scripture that you see as authoritative, you can call yourself a Christian, but you have departed from historic Christianity. This is a non-negotiable. It is as non-negotiable as the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The authority of the Bible is an essential component of the Christian faith. Without this belief, and not just the belief, but the practice, without the authority of Scripture in practice, we don't have Christianity. We might have the sound and fury and the trappings of Christianity, but it's a shell game. Without the authority of Scripture, Christianity has been transformed into a new religion. So the Christian view of God, sex, and human flourishing comes from Scripture. And experience cannot be our starting point. We are creatures. God is the creator. And so to have a good and true and beautiful view of sex and sexuality, the proper start starting point cannot be our experience. It can only be God. 
and the great true story of his dealing with men and women whom he loves that's been authorized in Scripture. So we started this series of teachings with culture, not because that's where you start to build a Christian view. The reason we started with culture is because we've got to take off the sunglasses we're wearing if we're going to see the proper view. The reason we have to start with culture is because we've got to unmask the presuppositions we're not even aware that we're bringing to the discussion. So we begin with culture in order to recognize our distortive perspective so that we can now turn and listen for God's voice. When it comes to sex, the Bible is where we turn to find the truth. This is the source of what is right and what is wrong. And a fundamental reason that our secular age is so uncomfortable with this approach is not because we're smart. Really, are we willing to say that we have more IQ than some of the people from the past? Are we really willing to say that? I mean, that smacks of an arrogance that it would be hard to let even out of your mouth, right? We're just smarter now. <laughs> Could you bring yourself to say that? No, 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 no. The reason our age struggles with this is not because we've got science. The reason our secular age is so uncomfortable with the scriptures as a starting point is because we are children of the romantic movement. I'm talking about romanticism. The widespread posture that began in England and France in the 18th century and reached its culmination in, Ger in Germany in the last generation of the 18th century and first generation of the 19th century. And it took hold of society through the poetry and novels of people like Goethe and William Blake and William Wordsworth and Samuel Taylor Coleridge and Ralph Waldo Emerson and the list goes on and on. Mary Shelley, Lord Byron, Victor Hugo, Jane Austen, Thoreau, Waltman. And, and these are some of my favorite authors. These are, I read these novels, I read their poetry regularly. This is the air we breathe and we've got to learn to recognize it. It is air-conditioned air. It's filtered air. And so the, in romanticism, the most important reality is the inner reality. That's why scripture is hard for us as a source of authority. Because it's not an inner thing. In romanticism, the most important reality is the inner reality, the intuition. And so the hero is the rebel against tradition. The subverter of institutions. The one who lives for authenticity and sincerity. With romanticism, our secular age has come to place the greatest value on experience, relationships, inner insight, moral intuition, innate desires. Live your truth. Speak your truth. And so morality is a personal choice, a matter of individual decision. Everybody's entitled to their own opinion. Don't judge anyone else on moral matters and don't let anybody else judge you. 
So the problem with society, in society's view, is not immoral people. It is people who go around talking about immoral people. To push your own moral views, that's to do violence, to dominate and control others. It's a kind of pathology that violates other people's dignity and rights. And yet Christianity is in a very different place on this stuff. In Christianity, we learn morality from Scripture. God has spoken to us from outside of us. And so we are not left to ourselves. We don't have to figure it all out by ourselves for ourselves. Now, I'm dwelling on this point because it is the point. It's the sticking issue. The traditional Christian conviction is that Scripture is our primary text. And therefore, we seek to interpret and align our lives with its truth. But our secular age, with its culture of authenticity, has reversed this dynamic. Within the modern mindset, our lives and personal experiences become the primary text. And we seek to interpret and align Scripture with that. And as a result, in too many churches and among too many Christians, the biblical teaching on gender and sexuality has been disciplined, chastised, and reinterpreted. And so we must learn again to be skeptical more skeptical of that stuff than we are of the Bible. We need to be skeptical of four primary secular sources of authority. First of all, we must become skeptical of our own moral intuitions. That's what I've been trying to do for the last three weeks. Remember, we've spent three weeks showing how the stories our society tells in remarkable ways, how they give us a script that is lulling us into believing that what seems to make sense must be the true thing. And what we've been showing is that the stuff that comes natural, the stuff that we intuit, it's not a pure insight. It's a programmed insight. Second, when Christians say that the Bible is a source of authority on the issues of gender and sexuality, we're elevating scriptures above our relationships with people we love. With people who have experiences at odds with scripture. Third, recognizing the Bible as the authoritative source for moral guidance on this issue means we're bringing our own attractions and feelings and deep desires under subjugation to the scriptures. We must allow scripture to contradict our own deepest impulses, our feelings, our sexual orientations, our sexual urges. And fourth, we must learn to submit our wishes scripture in other words what I wish to be true what I imagine should be true even that must be subject to the scriptures as the church has historically read them and so what we're about to do over the next several weeks is not Aubrey's opinion. It's not my view. It is the teaching of the scriptures passed down through the church. And yes, it's presented in my voice. But don't overestimate, don't overstate that. Don't overstretch that. What we're recovering is the moral logic behind Christian sexuality. How babies relate to marriage and marriage to sex and sex to identity and identity to being male and female. And how all of this relates to the person of Christ. 
That's where we're headed tonight and over the following four weeks. If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 19. Let's start with Jesus. Matthew chapter 19. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but... From the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have, been made, them, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Now in this passage, Jesus is asked, point blank, a politically volatile question. And in his response... Twice, he quotes the Old Testament. In verse 4, he quotes from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. He says, God made them male and female, and therefore man shall leave his father and mother. And God made them male from female. And then in verse 5, he quotes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. So Jesus is asked about divorce. And on the surface of it, it's like he doesn't hear their question. He doesn't say anything about divorce. Instead, what he does is he goes back to the very beginning of the Bible. Why does he do that? When Jesus is asked about the very complicated, right? uh, Steve knows this. He's a pastor. Questions about divorce are super complex. Lots of specific details. And by the way, they're only talking about one particular divorce. They're talking about Herod, who was married to a woman that was married to his brother. Because the last guy that said something about that divorce was John the Baptist. And it turned out difficult for him. He had his head chopped off because he spoke out against that. This is super complex. It's super nuanced. And Jesus, who always has the highest IQ in the room, he could handle all that. But instead, he goes back to the first two chapters of the Bible. Why? Why does he do that? Here's why. Because we cannot know 
whether a thing is good or bad or right or wrong unless we know its original purpose. Because it is not right to start with experience on this question. Because on this question, we don't start with particular issues. We don't start with our insights. We don't start with our friendships. We don't start with our own moral intuitions. Jesus is teaching us how to start here. It's so important for us to see what Jesus is doing here. He refuses to accept the discussion on the grounds it's presented. Instead, he appeals twice to the beginning. The British philosopher Roger Scruton, he wrote a book entitled Sexual Desire. And in the first few pages, Scruton has this wonderful analogy. He compares English butchers with French butchers. To the vegans and vegetarians, just, just chill out for a second. He says... He says that in butchery, an object is divided up, obviously, sometimes according to its nature and sometimes in defiance of its nature. The French butcher, Scruton says, prompted by a native respect for the fruit of the earth, endeavors to separate each natural texture and flavor from its competitors, detaching a fillet from the bone, from fat from kidney, and from the skin that encases it. He divides nature more nearly at the joint than his English colleague. In contrast, and I'm quoting at the point in case you think I've got a thing with the Brits. This is a Brit talking about the Brits. The English butcher, motivated by a zealous disdain for the corpse in front of him, and by a disdain for the man who will dare to buy it and eat it, chops the creature savagely into rough-hewn blocks, having little more than a tradition of fair play to recommend these blocks of meat. An English joint, it's different teenagers in what you're thinking, an English <laughs> joint may consist of a scrap of dorsal muscle, a piece of backbone, a fragment, a fragment of kidney, some skin and marrow, a few hairs, and the indelible mark which Farmer Jones once branded his lamb with. Now, a friend of mine, pointed this passage from Scruton out to me. Matthew Mason, some of you know him. He's British too. And he said to me, Aubrey, or he said to the group he was telling this, that as much as it, he hated saying something positive about the French, he tried to make a, a, a moral commitment to never speak well of the French. But he said, in fairness, there is a reason that French cuisine is famous and English cuisine is not. <laughs> When, when, when I lived in England, uh, Craig Bartholomew was my research supervisor. He was South African, but he uh, became a British citizen. And he said that um, the British could take any piece of meat and ruin it. <laughs> now, do you see the point these three distinguished British gentlemen are making? There is a natural pattern. There is a natural structure to the carcass in front of the butcher. And the French butcher is attentive to that structure. A skillful butcher will allow himself to be constrained by the natural pattern he has in front of him. And in that very constraint, he sets himself free 
free to produce cuts of meat of the highest quality. As it is with butchery, so it is with creation as a whole. God has designed the cosmos with an order. There is a God-given grain to the universe. A bit like the grain in a piece of wood. Or marble. We're told that a skillful sculptor will be attentive to the grain in the marble in front of him. And he will allow the marble to discipline him. Even transforming his original intention. So that he works with the grain of the stone. There's an order to reality. And the wise person will pay attention to that order. They'll pay attention to the grain of the universe. That's what it means to live wisely. To pay attention to the grain of the universe and to cut with the grain. A foolish person ignores the grain. Ignores reality. Thinks they can figure it out without knowing the creator of the grain. So back in Matthew 19, when Jesus is asked a really touchy question about divorce in public, this is how he goes about answering the question. And notice how in both exchanges, there's two different exchanges with the Pharisees, how he begins by alluding, not to Genesis 1.27, or not to Genesis 2.24, But twice he alludes to Genesis 1.1. Does anybody know the first verse of the Bible? What are the first three words of the Bible? In In the beginning. When Jesus is echoing this famous passage of Scripture, he changes it. In Matthew 19 verse 4, he says, Have you not read that he who created them In the beginning? Is that what your Bible says? What? From the beginning. The preposition there is from. From the beginning. And in verse 8, he does it again. From the beginning. Instead of in the beginning, he says from the beginning. In other words, the purpose of things in the beginning carries right on down through history. Ever since then. From that moment. You want to think about divorce, you've got to go back to there because what the way God designed marriage then, from then until now, that's how we know what it means. God put creation, he put into creation an order, a purpose. So Jesus is asked a really controversial question about marriage and divorce and his response is to say, all the way from the beginning, the way Jesus handles the tricky ethical questions about divorce is a crucial question passage of scripture, not only for how to think about sexuality and gender, but also about how to read the Bible. We have to learn to read the Bible from the beginning. Jesus is teaching us to read the Bible as the story of creation to new creation. The great Dutch theologian Herman Bavink summarized the essence of the Christian scripture in a single sentence. If you could do it in one sentence, I wonder, what would you say? Here's Bob Inc., and I can't do any better. The essence of Christianity is that the creation of the Father 
was ruined by sin, but it is restored in the death of the Son of God and recreated by the grace of the Holy Spirit into the kingdom of God. It's long. It's dutchy. The essence of Christianity is that the creation of the Father was ruined by sin, but it is restored in the death of the Son of God and recreated by the grace of the Holy Spirit of God into the kingdom of God. Here's the point. The gospel is about new creation. In the work of the Son and the Spirit, the Father is renewing His original design. Think of it like this. The Ghent altarpiece, one of the great masterpieces of all Western art, has recently been restored. It was dirty and damaged. It had been stolen several times. And what do you do with a great masterpiece when it's in a state of disrepair? You don't hire someone to paint a new one. No, you get a, a brilliant art conservator to lovingly restore it, to clean it, to repair it. Seven times God looked at what he made and said it was a masterpiece. What's he going to do with it when it breaks? When it gets ruined? When it gets stolen? When it gets hijacked? When it gets marred? He's going to send the greatest conservator to heal it, to fix it, to clean it. This is what God is doing with his creation. He is not discarding his original intent for sex or gender or marriage. He's not replacing it with a new thing. The starting place for a Christian understanding of sexuality and gender cannot be our experiences, our intuitions, our feelings, or friendships. It is God's original purpose in creation. We can't know right and wrong about sexuality and gender and all of the very complicated issues unless we go back. Unless we go back to the beginning. We have to be skeptical of the deep stories our culture is telling us about love that's teaching us that our feelings determine right or wrong. No, what's right and what's wrong in sex is based on how our behavior corresponds with God's original purpose. That's the first two-thirds of tonight. The second is, what is the original purpose? Let's follow Jesus' direction. We look at him and ask him, what about sex and gender and all this stuff? And he says, go back. So let's follow his gaze. Let's go back and let's look. And when we look at Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, in these passages we see that God created sex and gender for three purposes. Number one, to unite a husband and wife in intimacy, pleasure, and love. Number two... To create a child out of that husband and wife's intimate love. Number three, to participate and to point in a sacramental way to the love of God. So there's a unitive purpose, uh, making babies purpose. Church calls that a procreative purpose and a sacramental purpose. Let's take each in turn. 
First of all, sex was given as a gift to humanity in order to form a deep bond between a husband and a wife. Genesis 2.24 Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now that is a graphic image of sex. Holding fast, becoming one thing. Now what does this mean? Why does the very first description of sex use this graphic image of becoming one body? Why, what point is God making by saying that when two people have sex, they become one body? Is he merely making a physical observation? No, he's not. In the Bible, the word flesh, when it's used in this way, it is not talking merely about a physical body. It's talking about an entire person, a whole person. For a husband and wife to become one flesh is the bodily expression of a personal union at the deepest level of their being. We are all well aware that a good marriage does not just happen. The reality of becoming totally one, one flesh, begins with the wedding vows, but it takes a lifetime of work and attentiveness in order for two different people genuinely and deeply to become one. And sex is supposed to be like a glue that seeps ever deeper into the fabric of a relationship so that they are working out the commitment to become one flesh over time. If you have your Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. Paul forbids Christians from having sex with a prostitute. And the reason he gives for it is remarkable. It's not diseases. It's not the power system that you're getting trapped in. The reason he gives, starting in verse 16, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Flee from sexual immorality. And a little bit later, you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Paul is decrying the monstrosity of physical oneness without all the other kinds of oneness that are required for sex to be good and right. We might paraphrase Paul's statement this way. Don't you know that the purpose of sex is always a total union? To become totally united to another person in every area of life? Is that what you're seeking with a prostitute? No, it's not. So quit it. So don't do it. In other words, sex with a prostitute is wrong because every sex act is supposed to be a uniting act. Paul insists it is radically dissonant to give your body to someone to whom you will not also give your bank account and your name and your whole future, genealogy, and your career and everything there is about you. Sex is perhaps the most powerful God-created way to help you give your entire self to another human being. 
It is a mode of presence to your spouse unlike any other. It is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong to you, all of me, nothing held back. I belong to you, not only all of me, I belong to you for all time, permanently. Not only I belong all of me to you and for all time, but I only belong to you. Exclusively to you. And we must not use sex to say anything else. So the first purpose of sex is for a total union between two people. For two people to unite at all areas of their lives. And the way they do that is through physically becoming one flesh. The second purpose of sex is to make babies. To make children. Go back to Genesis chapter 2 verse 24. And in honor of Zelda, I'm going to go all Jewish on you. I'm going to introduce you, in case you haven't met this before, to um, a traditional Jewish reading of this passage of Scripture. Genesis 2, 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This final phrase, phrase, they shall become one flesh, it's a double entendre. It has two meanings. It's not only that, they, that the husband and wife become joined in, in that moment, they become the embodiment of one flesh, it's also that the husband and wife, when they hold fast to each other, two produces another flesh. They become one flesh. Your children or the, your child, that's a flesh, a one flesh that came out of two holding fast. One flesh is produced. Another person proceeds out of their union. The man and the woman become one not only in the sexual act itself, but in the fact that this act gives rise to flesh, a new human life. Of course this is a purpose of sex. Genesis 1.27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And he blessed them and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In this passage, it is clear that part of our ability to bear God's image is our ability to create a new soul. Us and God together in that moment, the three of us are co-creating together. And this is the, one of the reasons that sex is sacred. When we have sex With God, we can make a new soul. This is not just about population growth. We serve God and His kingdom in marriage by producing families of disciples, children who know and love and serve the kingdom of God. It's not just about having kids. It's also about raising them well. The church has taught from the beginning that just as human beings are made for something outside of themselves, namely communion with God, sex is made for something outside of its enjoyment. Namely, participation with God in the creation of a new person. Since mutual consent rather than covenant has become the moral foundation of sex, sex has been disconnected from marriage. And marriage has become disconnected from procreation. The decision to have children is now a separate choice entirely from getting married 
and from having sex. But listen, sex is for babies. And we've forgotten this. Because most people use contraceptives. And when an entire society regularly has sterile sex, we forget what it was made for. We think that sterility is natural and safe. And removing the contraception is the option. It's the choice. And and what we've done here is that we've made the decision to have children as a totally separate thing from the decision to have sex and the decision even to be married. Sex is for babies. We've forgotten this. This is not to say that sex is only for procreation. It's not. Every sex act between a husband and a wife does not have to be open to pregnancy. A husband and wife can turn to one another in loving affection without the possibility of pregnancy. Why? Because there's more to sex than this. Because when they do, they are embodying and nurturing and enriching their complete sharing of life. A husband and wife can seek that even when children are not planned or wanted or desired in that particular season. Sexual pleasure through the uniting of a husband and wife is a fulfillment of one of the purposes of sex. Not every sex act between a husband and wife has to be open to pregnancy. And yet... Why do we need to spend any time on that argument? I mean, who's really struggling with that these days? We have shifted from child-centered romance, from child-centered sex, from child-centered marriage, to romance-centered marriage, to pleasure-centered sex. And that is a shift from God's original purpose. From our Hallmark cards to our divorce courts, the American view of sex has come to emphasize feelings over desires and career over romance and the years of sacrificial nurture that's required for having children. Our society is at war on children. From abortion to deliberately childless marriages. And then there's the whole way in which our culture demands that women get rid of the mom bod and get back to a body type unmarked by childbearing. As if childbearing diminishes a woman's beauty. We need a society that helps women to be filled with humble thanks for the ways God has used children to mark their bodily life. People considering marriage must be open to children and they must be devoted to raising them well. Let us not accidentally allow the technology of birth control to make us forget the procreative purposes of marriage and sex. In creation, we see the purposes of sex as unitive, as procreative, and finally as a pointer and a participation in the love of God. The sacramental. Turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. Paul is quoting... From Genesis 2.24, he says, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That means unitive, and it means procreative. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ in the church. It also means sacramental. All three are in that verse. Paul is not adding an interpretation to the Old Testament. He's saying it's been there all along. 
So sex is for the husband and wife. Sex is for the children. And sex is for God. This is true in the sense that sex should be received as a gift from God. But it's also true in the sense that when practiced according to the grain of the universe, sex between a husband and wife can train us to turn away from idols, from ingrown selfishness to kingdom work. It can train us to point our whole lives, body and soul, sex included, toward the only one who can satisfy the thirsty animals that we are, the God whom we have met in Jesus Christ, who promised us in John chapter 4, verse 14, those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. Sex points to the love between the Father and the Son. It is a reflection of the joyous self-giving and pleasure of love within the very life of the triune God. But there's more. Sex is glorious, not only because it reflects the joy of the Trinity, but also because it points to the eternal delight of soul that you and I will have in heaven in our loving relationships with God and one another. In Romans chapter 7, God tells us that the best marriages are pointers to the deep infinitely fulfilling and final union we will have with Christ in love. No wonder, as some have said, that sex between a man and a woman can be a sort of embodied, out-of-body experience. It's an ecstatic, breathtaking, daring, scarcely-to-be-imagined look at the glory that is our future. In the words of Philip Yancey, a Christian author, if humanity serves as your religion, then sex becomes an act of worship. On the other hand, if God is the object of your religion, then romantic love becomes an unmistakable pointer, a transcendence as loud as any we hear on earth. So I'll close with something. I, I started with this British philosopher. I'll close with a Canadian novelist, Margaret Atwood. Uh, some of you might know she's, um, what's this show that's, Super, that's getting all these awards, The Handmaid's Tale. She wrote that. She, she, one of her novels, Orizix and Crack, Crake, Orizix and Crake. Say it? Oryx. It's O R Y Z X. Oryx and Crake. She creates a horrific world, a dystopia. Lots of things have gone wrong, but sex is one area in which brokenness shows up powerfully. The main character, Jimmy. He's in love with a woman named Oryx. Oryx has an unspeakable past. One of abuse and exploitation. In which she was cruelly used by child pornographers. Jimmy wants to know exactly what happened in her abuse. And he keeps pressing her for details. He asked, it wasn't real sex, was it? I mean, in those movies you made, it, it was only acting, wasn't it? And Oryx shuts him down with this answer. But Jimmy, you should know, all sex is real. Beth Felker Jones, um, a wonderful theologian, 
she responds to that scene by saying, I believe Margaret Atwood is exactly right. All sex is real. Much of what goes wrong around Christian understandings of sex has to do with our failure to remember that. We fail to see that the way we do and do not have sex has to do with who God really is and we really are. That's why Jesus went back to the beginning. In Psalm 119, verse 107, the psalmist prays this to the Father. Give me life according to your word. Psalm 119, 107. Give me life according to your word. That is the prayer of a faithful Christian. That is the prayer of someone who is ready to take the risk of living by the creator's design. It doesn't mean we know everything about scripture or about the challenges of life. It doesn't mean we have the answer to every question. What it means is that we're willing to rely on scripture. To receive it on its own terms. Questioning it, but more importantly, being questioned by it. In the expectation that God's way, the Creator's way, really is the best way. 